This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Are you a law student with an interest in criminal or immigration law? Would you like a free, fun, and informative way of keeping abreast of major changes? Learn advocacy tips and get exposure to the brightest minds in these important practice areas. Iman Publishing, a proud sponsor of the Law School Show, produces two podcasts that will inform and entertain. The Lawyer's Lounge is a criminal law-focused podcast hosted by the esteemed Daniel Robitaille. With over 25,000 downloads, over 13 episodes, it has become the preeminent criminal law podcast in Canada. Listen for practical advocacy tips, business and career advice, and life-saving hacks in criminal practice. If your interest is in immigration law, listen to our podcast, Welcome Home, with expert hosts Chantal Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, informative guests in our regular What I Wish I Knew segment will be of great utility for aspiring immigration lawyers. A great way to bridge the gap between academia and practice. Give us a listen on any of your favorite podcast providers. Hello, my name is William Lundy. I will be your host for this episode of The Law School Show. Our guest for today is Leonid Sirota. This is Professor Sirota's second episode on The Law School Show. He is an associate professor at Reading University in the UK, and before teaching law, he got his law degree at McGill University, clerked at the Federal Court of Canada, and obtained an LLM in legal theory and JST from the NYU School of Law. He has published extensively on administrative and constitutional law issues. He is the founder of the Double Aspect Blog, which comments on administrative and constitutional law and was named Best Canadian Law Blog in 2014 and runner-up in 2015 and 2017. Professor Sirota, welcome back to The Law School Show. Thanks. It's good to be back. So I was thinking today we could talk about the recent Supreme Court of Canada decision, the Toronto uh, Toronto City Council versus Ontario decision that came out last fall. You've um, published a comment on the decision in Canley called Correct But Wrong, and I, I, I would be interested in um, getting your, your take on the decision. And so maybe we could start by, tell us a little bit about the background to that decision. So what, what, what are sort of the, um, what, what happened that gave rise to this dispute between Ontario and, and the city of Toronto? Right. So it starts with the election of the progressive conservative government in in Ontario, the government that is currently in office and is about to face its re-election. And a few months later, the municipal elections are scheduled in Toronto. Now, I think it's it's no secret, and it might be a little too political, but it really is no secret. Everybody knows that the premier of Ontario, the new then new premier of Ontario, Doug Mm -hmm. Ford, former municipal councillor, and he has uh, some access to grind Mm -hmm. about the functioning of the institution where he used to serve before going into provincial politics. And so he thinks that the Toronto City Council will function a lot better if it is cut down in size. In fact, if uh, the size is cut down in half almost. Mm -hmm. And so the... uh, provincial legislature passes very quickly, passes this law that uh, cuts the number of wards that are represented on council from 47 to 25 and aligns the electoral map in Toronto with the one that is used federally and provincially. Uh, So Toronto gets 25 representatives uh, in the House of Commons, 25 representatives in the Ontario legislature, and it will also have 25 councillors representing the wards whose boundaries are exactly aligned with the uh, provincial and federal ridings. Mm-hmm. And this happens about uh, two months and change before the actual election. The municipal election campaign has been 
ongoing for a while. It's a very protracted campaign. It's much longer than the standard month-long campaigns that you see federally and provincially. Uh, and so the uh, exist, existing council and outgoing councillors are not happy. Uh, evidently, many of them will, uh, will lose their jobs. And they think it's a bad idea to for this reform to be brought in. But especially, it's very disruptive. And I think everybody agrees that it's very disruptive and probably unnecessarily disruptive for this reform to be brought in while the election campaign is ongoing. It's one thing to change the rules for the future election that's going to happen in a few years. It's a different story when you're changing the rules in the middle of an ongoing election campaign. Although, again, there is still a good deal of time left before people are actually voting. Mm -hmm. uh, the provincial government and legislature pay no heed to these concerns. They pass the legislation uh, that reforms Toronto City Council and uh, the municipality takes the province to court and it says this law is unconstitutional on uh, two grounds. On the one hand, it is an infringement of, of the freedom of expression of both the candidates and the voters in the election, and also it's a violation of the constitutional principle of democracy, which the Supreme Court had previously recognized as one of the underlying unwritten principles of the Canadian Constitution. Uh, and then the the story, I think, is relatively well known. They win uh, initially at first instance at the Superior Court. Uh, the uh, government, provincial government responds by introducing a bill that will repass the uh, same legislation that has just been declared unconstitutional and invoke the notwithstanding clause uh, to insulate it from uh, review for compliance with the Charter. Before that bill can be passed, the Ontario they also appeal, and the Ontario Court of Appeal issues a stay of the Superior Court judgment pending appeal. So the Superior Court judgment doesn't take effect. The law remains valid and uh, remains standing, remains in force. The municipal election happens in accordance with this new map with 25 wards. And then the Court of Appeal rules on the merits in a split decision uh, that the law is constitutional, and then it goes to the Supreme Court, which also rules in a split decision, five to four, that um, the law is constitutional. There is no uh, violation. There is, in fact, no, not even a, a limitation of the freedom of expression involved and the unwritten principles also uh, do not justify setting this law aside. Mm -hmm. And in your um, comment on the decision, you were uh, quite critical of both the uh, majority and the dissent. Uh, maybe let's let's take that um, step by step. So on the first issue of Section Two B, you know, what does the what does the majority say, and then and what does the dissent say? So the majority says that the claim, the uh, Section 2B claim, is uh, what they call a positive rights claim. The, the claim, as the majority sees it, is for the province to provide a particular kind of platform on which people will be able to express their views about municipal politics. And claims of this nature rarely succeed. There is a very high bar before they uh, will be entertained. Uh, in this case, uh, the claim is, is not well-founded, it's not justified uh, according to the majority. There is another aspect of the uh, Section 2B claim as well. Uh, the city tried to argue that uh, Section 2B incorporates a requirement of effective representation in electoral institutions. Now, that's the requirement that is associated normally with Section 3 of the Charter, uh, but Section 3 doesn't apply to municipal elections. So they said, well, Section 2B also incorporates this idea of effective representation. The majority says no. The dissent says that it's 
unhelpful to draw those distinctions between positive and negative aspects of charter rights. They compare it to uh, the uh, judgment of Solomon. They say, well, this is not a wise uh, decision to split the charter rights in half, uh, as King Solomon supposedly ordered uh, with that uh, baby. And so Mm -hmm. uh, there is, because of the nature of the disruption to the democratic process uh, that is involved here, and they uh, go over the evidence of how disruptive this new law has been, uh, because of that disruption, there is, in fact, a violation of uh, freedom of expression of those involved. The province hasn't really tried to justify uh, in the uh, dissent size, at least the province hasn't really tried to justify uh, the need for for this disruption. And so the law uh, is a limitation of freedom of expression rights. It's not justified in a free and democratic society. Uh, and so it's it fails the Section 1 test and it is unconstitutional. So in, in your comment, you say, you, you think on the Section 2B issue, the the outcome the majority reaches is correct um so so why why do you think that i think it as the majority says it the city's claim really was for the uh maintenance of a very specific platform or a very specific setting within which election was uh sorry within which expression would occur the the law that reorganizes the municipal election campaign doesn't prevent anyone from speaking out on municipal issues. It makes time for candidates to run in the new election, to register in the new election. Uh, There's some claims that uh, this was a bit difficult to do because there's not a lot of time left and so on. There there was still some time, uh, and the city did take some care to ensure that the candidates would, in fact, be able to restart their uh, their campaigns. Uh, but more fundamentally, there's no restrictions on what anyone can say about municipal politics, about the election, and so on. The same rules that used to apply about you know, limits on candidate spending and so on, uh, the same rules remain in force for the new election process. So the same things that could have been said before are still able to be said after the law enters into force. So in that Mm -hmm. sense, nobody's expression is limited. Of course, there's a disruption, but legislation can disrupt expression all the time. And in my post, the the example I gave is, imagine a province rushes through a law that bans the sale of alcohol. Well, that will uh, be quite disruptive, uh, not only to our habits, but also Mm -hmm. to a lot of expression that takes place on the assumption that alcohol remains uh, illegal and available for sale. It will disrupt advertising, it will disrupt scientific studies, it will disrupt uh, various public health campaigns that tell people, well, don't drink too much or, you know, have your two glasses of red wine a day and so on. So all legislation is disruptive to a greater or lesser extent that can be a political reason for not legislating at all or for uh, being careful about the timing of legislation. Uh, But it's never been recognized as a constitutionally cognizable harm. uh, And Mm -hmm. I don't think that it necessarily should be. Okay. And what about what the dissent says about, you know, we shouldn't have this strict distinction between, you know, positive rights claims and negative rights claims uh, within the context of Section 2B, and you know, we should kind of treat all of these claims according to you know a similar test, and particularly political expression. Uh, the, we we've long recognized the the unique importance of political expression in Canada, and so um, kind of interpreting the charter in such a way as to facilitate these you know really disruptive um, attempts to uh, or disruptive legislation. Um, in in the context of political expression, shouldn't be allowed. Again, I think that, uh, so the distinction between positive and negative rights or positive and negative aspects uh, of a right can be useful. One shouldn't make too much of it. I actually agree with that. uh, And Mm -hmm. I don't quite like 
some of the language from the majority, which which tries to make it uh, perhaps more rigid than it really deserves to be. Uh, but that said, I think fundamentally the majority is exactly right to say that, look, nobody's political expression is actually being uh, silenced. Nobody's political expression is being censored. The things that you were able to say under the old regime, you're able to say under the new regime. Uh, and so the the real, the, the change is to the process itself. But that, that does go to uh, the point that this is, this is not a standard claim about uh, political speech when, you know, people are being somehow prevented from criticizing the government in some way. Uh, mm-hmm or making the, the, the case for their preferred uh, political ideas. And that's what we have in mind when we say political speech is sacrosanct. And mm-hmm. it may bear noting that actually nobody, and especially not the dissent, believes that. Because everybody in Canada, at least, uh, is very committed to extensive regulation of political speech, extensive limits on uh, the amount of money that people are allowed to spend on election campaigns, Mm -hmm. virtual silencing of third parties, so-called, which is to say everybody except political parties and politicians. Uh, So the reality is that uh, political speech is actually more censored and regulated than pretty much any other kind of speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're moving towards ever more regulation of it because we've moved from just regulating election campaigns to regulating ever longer pre-campaign periods as well. Uh, But that's, that's by the way, still, even if we accept the, the principle that political speech should be free as, as I think we should, uh, then uh, it still remains the case that nobody in Toronto was actually prevented from uh, saying things that they had been able to say before. Again, the, the real issue is the disruption of a particular setup uh, through which that uh, those opinions were being channeled. And again, that disruption may have been very unwise. Uh, I'm inclined to think that, that it was. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same thing as a limitation on people's ability to support government, criticize government, express their views on what public policy should be. Okay. And then the, the second issue um, in the decision is about, you know, the the application of the constitutional principle of democracy and whether um, the courts can uh, resort to these unwritten principles to invalidate legislation. And there's quite a sharp disagreement uh, between um, the majority and the dissent on this. Um, and you're, you're, you're quite critical of um, the opinions expressed by both sides. So, so what, what does the majority say about, about constitutional principles? So the, the majority says, uh, I think the, the majority wants to, as much as possible, shut down arguments based on constitutional principles, not just for this case, but for the future. Uh, because mm-hmm. for the purposes of this case, what it what it says and what would really have been quite sufficient to say is that as in a case that was decided a while ago now called Imperial Tobacco in British Columbia, where Imperial Tobacco had argued that a law that subjected them to a retrospective regime of civil liability for selling products that were perfectly legal and not uh, subject to civil liability at the time they were sold. Mm -hmm. They were retroactively told, oh, and by the way, it turns out that this was a tort all along for you to be selling those products. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they say, well, this is a violation of the rule of law. And the rule of law is another constitutional principle that the court has recognized. And the Supreme Court says, no, sorry, guys, Uh, we have in the charter, we have an explicit uh, prohibition on retroactive criminal laws, but we don't have a prohibition on uh, retroactive civil laws. And that suggests that you cannot use uh, the... uh, you, you cannot use a constitutional principle to, in effect, extend the protections that already exist in the Charter in ways that the framers of the Charter chose not to extend them. 
And the uh, argument in the City of Toronto case is exactly the same in that Section 3, as we already mentioned, protects uh, the right to vote, and the Supreme Court has said rightly or wrongly that it protects the right to effective representation in the context of federal and provincial elections. It does not protect the same right in the context of municipal elections. So the framers of the Charter made this choice, and the uh, majority in the City of Toronto says that there was, in fact, some discussion uh, around the time of patriation uh, as to whether uh, municipal elections should be uh, somehow uh, protected and, uh, in the Charter or uh, otherwise. Uh, the choice was made to leave uh, things as they were. Uh, so the uh, framers of a charter did not extend this protection to municipal elections, and uh, you cannot use the principle of democracy to make an end run uh, and uh, circumvent the decisions that were made when the charter was framed. And, and I agree with that. Uh, I think that is all that was uh, necessary to say to uh, reject this claim. But the majority says wants to go further, and they say. Uh, that unwritten principles, for the most part, and we'll see that they, they caveat that uh, quite a bit, but the basic principle is that unwritten principles cannot be used to invalidate legislation. They can be used uh, as interpretive aids. They can be used for gap filling. And again, we can return to that in a second, but they cannot be used to invalidate legislation. The majority also says that, uh, by the way, federalism is a bit special and the honor of the crown is a bit special, but at least other principles cannot be used to invalidate legislation. Um, yeah, so and, and, and what does the dissent say about constitutional principles? Dissent's take is uh, very different, at least, uh, again, this is not for the purposes of this case, because interestingly, the dissent... Uh, the Senate doesn't need to touch the, on the question of constitutional principles at all, because they would have allowed the city's appeal on the basis of Section 2B of uh, the Charter. So they don't need to consider constitutional principles, but they, they do consider them without ever saying uh, whether the principle of democracy is in fact violated in this case. Uh, again, they don't need to. But what they say about principles in general is that uh, the Constitution consists fundamentally of unwritten principles. The constitutional text is just an elaboration on uh, those principles, and it's not an exhaustive one. The text is incomplete, and the courts uh, can enforce principles uh, when the text fails to take certain matters into account. Okay, and so you, you kind of disagree with um, both the dissent and uh, the majority view. So, so maybe we could, I guess, maybe start with the dissent and then get into the, the majority view a bit more. So, so what's wrong with what the dissent says? That you know, the the text is just a mere elaboration of these constitutional principles, and you know, we can they they can kind of they work together alongside the text and can be used to invalidate. Uh, legislation. What's um, what's wrong with that? So that that uh, means that the text doesn't really matter at all, and that can't be right. As the the Supreme Court has previously said, the Constitution of Canada is primarily a written one, uh, and that's that's got to be right. Now, primarily doesn't mean exclusively, and we can also get to that. But in in the secession reference, which is the, used to be at least the leading case on uh, constitutional principles in general, so there is a fairly extensive discussion there of the role that principles can play uh, and what they are, the court still says the constitution is primarily a written one. So we have, I think, to uh, take the, the text as an independent uh, source of authority, and we have to respect it on its own terms. And that's why... Uh, as much as I think that, you know, from a principled position, uh, the outcome in the imperial tobacco case is de deplorable. I think it is very uh, wrong that legislatures are able to impose retroactive 
uh, liability on uh, even on you know people we don't like like tobacco companies uh, mm-hmm. I think that as I've already said from a principal perspective it's probably fair to say that the law uh, that disrupted the election in, in Toronto was was not a good law at least uh, based on when it was passed I, I don't have much of a view on whether it would have been a good idea for the future but at least disrupting an election that has already started I think is, is uh, not a good idea uh, but still we have to respect the the fact that the framers of the constitution made the uh, choice to leave certain things to the political process and not to assign them to the courts. Under the dissent's approach in the city of Toronto, the the courts can always expand their remit by saying, well, look, the, the text of the constitution is uh, is just a starting point, and we we can add to it. Uh, in a, in effect, that's what the dissent thinks it it will be able to do. Uh, this is something that I've described elsewhere as uh, constitutionalism from Plato's cave, in the 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 myth of the of the cave that Plato tells. Uh, you know, people are living inside a cave and they uh, see reflections or they see shadows on the walls of the cave that are cast by objects that are outside in in the sun. Uh, And so they form their ideas about what the real world is like simply by by looking at those shadows. Uh, And uh, it takes philosophers to explain them that you know, those things that they imagine to be real are are just uh, shadows and that the real objects are in exist on a you know, different plane entirely. Uh, and so in uh, this approach to constitutional interpretation would have the judges of the Supreme Court acting as those philosophers who alone have access to the real constitution and the rest of us only see the text, which is just a shadow of the real thing. And uh, I don't think that that's how constitutions work. That's not how written constitutions work. An, an approach to the Canadian constitution that uh, disregards the text in effect uh, entirely, and or says that well, it's you know it's useful if it, when it's useful, but otherwise we we can do what we think is just and right. Uh, I think that's not a faithful approach to applying the constitution. And it aggrandizes the courts in in ways that are uh, unwarranted. And so, based on you know the the concerns that you you know expressed just now about the, the dissent's approach, um, it seems like the the majority approach has has a lot to say for itself uh, in in terms of you know we want to you know avoid that kind of you know excessive judicial discretion by kind of narrowing. Uh, the use of these principles uh, to specific contexts, um, but but you think but you think the majority approach is 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 misguided, so or, or at least or, or goes too far. So why 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 do you think that? Yeah, so I think the uh, the majority first of all is at odds with precedent. Uh, there are a number of of past cases where. The Supreme Court has relied on principles, including in ways that uh, cannot really be squared with a a rejection of their role in constitutional interpretation. I think uh, it it is a fact which, uh, you know, we might consider unfortunate, but it's unavoidable that there are uh, implications that can be fairly drawn from the text, uh, but which are not in the text, uh, and which really are uh, unavoidable uh, traits of the the constitution that we actually have, not just uh, an imaginary constitution, an ever more perfect constitution that judges uh, want to create, but the constitution that we already have. Uh, And I'm thinking for, for example, of the dissent in the uh, patriation reference, the dissent on the legal question by Justices Martin and Ritchie, which is then endorsed uh, without even a recognition that it's a dissent uh, in the secession reference. Now, so in patriation reference, 
the court is considering whether uh, the federal parliament can request what the enactment of what becomes the Canada Act 1982, which contains the charter and the amending formula by the UK parliament, which at that time is the entity which can amend the Canadian constitution. And they say, look, you you, you couldn't, uh, the Canadian constitution, so Justices Martin and Ritchie say, uh, Canadian constitution is fundamentally a federal constitution. It's nothing if it's not a federal constitution. And yet on the view of parliament's powers that is being put forward by the federal government, Parliament could request a constitutional amendment that will abolish the provinces tomorrow. And that would destroy federalism as we know it, that would destroy the constitution as we know it. So there is a hard legal limit, they say, to Parliament's ability to to procure such changes. And I I think that's right. And the majority in city of Toronto is at pains to say that, well, this doesn't count because federalism is special. Is federalism really special? Well, they say, well, federalism isn't just an unwritten underlying principle. Federalism is in the text because we have the division of powers in the text. But the 1981, 1982 amendments, they uh, were not going to explicitly change the division of powers that was in the text. They didn't require an amendment of of the text. Uh, So I think it's uh, it's not entirely true that, uh, so federalism is definitely reflected in the text. That's how we know that it is an underlying constitutional principle, but it's not limited to what is explicitly in the text. And we could say uh, about other principles that the Supreme Court has recognized that they're also reflected in the text, sometimes even mentioned by name in the text, uh, but they're certainly not reducible to what is found in in the text of the Constitution. Uh, So if we take the rule of law, the rule of law is mentioned in the preamble of the 1982 uh, Constitution Act. Uh, Now, preambles have no enacting force, though that you cannot make an argument based on the fact that the rule of law is in the preamble, but it's, it's at least it's mentioned there. And more importantly, you can look to a number of provisions in the charter, uh, including some aspects of Section 7, uh, Sections 9 uh, to 11 of the Charter, uh, some others. You can look to things like the uh, official languages requirements that say that laws have to be published, uh, enacted and published in the two official languages. So those are all provisions that reflect the principle of the rule of law, along with perhaps some other considerations, along with individual rights, along with uh, bilingualism and, and federal duality and so on. But they reflect, among other things, the principle of the rule of law. So it's it's not an invention. It's There is a textual foundation to say that uh, the Canadian Constitution protects and uh, embodies the rule of law. But the rule of law is something that can be potentially bigger than what is in the words that are on the page. Uh, same thing with democracy. Uh, some provisions in the charter protect democratic rights, and in fact, they say that they protect democratic rights. Uh, all the the provisions that have to do with uh, representation in the House of Commons in uh, the nineteen eighty, uh, in, sorry, in the eighteen sixty seven Constitution, uh, those obviously reflect the democratic principle. But again, democracy can be uh, something bigger than just those provisions. So, the point is that. Uh, federalism is uh, is not that different. It's partially and in, in importantly reflected in the text, but not not exhaustively. Uh, and an interference with the constitutional order that would fundamentally undermine its federal character, or that one that would undermine its character as being one of secures the rule of law or as being a democratic constitution could, I think, be uh, unconstitutional in in a legal sense, even if uh, we uh, cannot necessarily uh, fairly attach it to 
uh, a particular constitutional provision. And uh, one example of that, and a very recent example, which the uh, majority in the city of Toronto ignores entirely, is the Vavilov case about uh, judicial review of administrative action. So in Vavilov, uh, the um, majority, the seven to two majority in that case, uh, says that uh, we, generally speaking, judicial review of administrative decisions proceeds on whatever standard the legislature has provided, uh, reflecting the principle, and that's that's also an unwritten constitutional principle of uh, fund, uh, parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, but but there is there is a caveat there. We don't do that. Where giving effect to legislative intent is precluded by the rule of law. It's paragraph 23 of Vavilov. So there will be potentially, or there could be situations where the rule of law, an unwritten constitutional principle, prevents us from giving effect to whatever parliament has enacted. And that's, uh, again, a very recent decision. Uh, and I think it's the correct decision in, uh, in that case, because it's, uh, if uh, Parliament were able to insulate uh, certain administrative decisions from review, it would undermine uh, the, the separation of powers and it would undermine the subordination of the executive uh, to the law. It would uh, deny the character of the constitution as one that is based on the rule of law. So I think Vavilov is right, and uh, at least in, in this regard, I obviously had a lot to say about why Vavilov is uh, wrong in many ways, but this point I think is well taken, uh, and the city of Toronto is not consistent with it and is wrong not to be consistent with it. And so if if we, if we do have to... Um... If the constitutional principles can limit legislation in, in some circumstances or limit the ability of parliament and the legislatures to enact legislation, a certain kinds of legislation, you know, how do we draw the line between um, using these principles in a way um, which is permissible, which permissibly limits um, the legislative authority of the legislatures in parliament and uses of these principles which overreach right which overreach the uh, sort of the purview of the courts yes so so that's that's obviously a very difficult question and i I don't think I have a, a fleshed out answer to it but but let me say this so i I think that it's a question that calls for a great deal of humility uh, on the part of the courts, I, I think that is very important, and I understand that the majority in City of Toronto wants uh, it comes from a place of humility, and it it wants to uh, make this uh, self-denying ordinance, if you will. It, it wants to to tell the future courts, it wants to tie itself to the mast and say we can't go there. We we are in danger of abusing our powers, and we must not. Uh, so the the instinct is commendable. Uh, I I would say against that twisting precedents uh, and making those flimsy distinctions that the uh, majority makes along the way to support its position, that is not uh, very humble at all. I think humility re requires also fidelity to uh, to precedent, at least to the extent that you fairly describe what, what the precedent decides. If you then overturn it, that's one thing, but, but at least fidelity to precedent to the extent of engaging with it and, and being fair to it. But that, uh, that aside, uh, Again, I think that as an example, uh, Vavilov sets out a fair uh, application of the principle of the rule of law. And by contrast, imperial tobacco, where the rule of law is really sought to be uh, used to extend a, provi a provision of the charter, uh, is an example of 
would have been an example of an impermissible use of the principle. So, so one limit to the use of the principle is to ask, well, has this question been settled by the text? And and it often has been. Uh, so that that uh, limits and constrains the powers of the court. On the other hand, you can ask if the principle is not applied here, is the fundamental character of the constitution in danger? And and evidently that's a vague question and we might say that you know the the bar before finding that the fundamental character of the constitution is is in danger is um is high uh but the patriation reference gives us an example of where the character of the constitution really was at stake City of mm-hmm. Toronto, by contrast, is is not. I mean, the fact that municipal elections, uh, while remaining democratic, you know, that they're being provisioned for the same candidates to run, subject to the same rules, except in in a different ward structure, to say that this would somehow undermine the democratic character of the constitution, uh, uh, that would be nonsensical. Uh, and I, I think anyone frankly, should recognize that this was not, uh, in fact, a, a threat to the democratic ca- character of the Canadian Constitution. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's that's where I am right now. I realize that it's not terribly satisfactory. I, I haven't got a fully uh, fleshed out theory, uh, but I think that uh, I, I will say that it was just not necessary uh, for the majority to go there. I and mean, this is a genuinely difficult uh, question with respect to the Canadian constitution. And uh, as the dissent uh, suggests, uh, for every constitution, uh, it's true that no constitution out there is really fully reducible to uh, the terms of its provisions, as the majority suggests that the, the Canadian constitution is. Uh, so it's a, it's a difficult question for every constitutional order. And I think there is, you know, if you think, uh, speaking of humility, I think one thing that humility requires is uh, that we proceed step by step uh, without necessarily setting out those uh, categorical rules uh, in cases where the rules are not in fact implicated or they're, where they are not necessary. And um, you, you mentioned the, the majority's approach. So they, they kind of have this strong line against using principles to invalidate legislation, but then they, they actually have some significant caveats to that view. So what, what, were, what were some of the, the caveats that they expressed. So the, the, the biggest ones were that they say, well, federalism is different, and we've already addressed that. They also say the honor of the crown is different uh, because it uh, implicates the very special and difficult uh, historical circumstances in which the crown's sovereignty was asserted uh, over Canada. And that's uh, fair so far as it goes. Uh, but you could tell this the same story of specialness about uh, the other principles that can be plausibly described as being important uh, underlying principles of our constitutional order. So, for example, uh, federalism, you could say, well, it, it's a very special uh, idea for Canada because Canada would not exist except as a federal country. That's something that everybody can agree on. Uh, everybody recognizes this. Uh, federalism was the key that enabled uh, Canada to be created. And so that's a very special uh, principle, and it, including in the sense that it, it uh, provides a certain assurance, in much as the honor of the crown provides an assurance to a minority uh, whose rights have been you know, trampled on for for a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. Federalism is also there to provide assurance to regional linguistic and other minorities uh, from from the beginning, and it's been more respected than the honor of the crown. Uh, but that doesn't make it any less important. Uh, so, so you can tell that story about federalism. You can obviously tell the story of, of democracy as a, a fundamentally important and unique and uh, historically grounded constitutional principle going back to 
uh, at least the 17th century and the, the conflict between the House of Commons and the Crown at that time uh, and its settlement with the Glorious Revolution and then uh, and, you know, the, the fight for first representative uh, institutions in Canada and then responsible government in Canada. I mean, that's an important history as well uh, with, again, implications for the rights not just of majorities but but of minorities as well uh, so just without in any way wanting to diminish the importance of uh, the honor of the crown as uh, a special principle within the our constitutional setup uh, i'm not sure that it is unique in in a way that other principles are not uh, I don't think it detracts from its importance to say that other principles also have uh, very uh, unique and uh, historical pedigrees. Uh, so that distinction doesn't strike me as terribly compelling. Uh, then another point that the, the dissent wants to make is that um, is about the provincial judge's reference. So that's a case where uh, a number of provinces, when they are trying to get their budgetary affairs in order in the 90s, uh, have reduced uh, pay for public employees across the board, uh, so that affects all sorts of civil servants, and that affects judges as well uh, on the, the terms of the legislation that they enact. So it's not like they're singling out judges for pay cuts, but they are applying pay cuts to, to judges along with all sorts of other people. And uh, the judges take the provinces to court and they say this is a violation of our independence, specifically of the financial security dimension of our independence. Uh, we should benefit from the same protection that is stated in the Constitution Act uh, 1867, before uh, federally appointed judges, that their salaries uh, are not to be diminished uh, during their term in office. Mm-hmm. But of course, that is not in the in the language of uh, for provincially appointed judges. The the text of the constitution makes no such provision. The Supreme Court reads it into the the protection for judicial independence that is in the charter so the charter says that anyone charged with an offense has the right to be tried by an independent court uh so the the supreme court says well and that includes financial security okay but what about provincial judges who are never actually uh, trying criminal uh, charges the, the charter doesn't apply to them in the same way as the protection against retroactive uh, criminal laws doesn't apply in civil cases. The charter also doesn't uh, seemingly doesn't apply to its protection for judicial independence to civil cases. And the Supreme Court in the provincial judge's reference says, well, the principle of judicial independence means that uh, those judges are entitled to the same security for their, their salary as those that sit in criminal cases. The uh, city of Toronto, and that's that's a very contestable decision. And then, then of course, the, the court also goes on to say that judicial independence requires the existence of those independent commissions that are going to recommend uh, salaries to legislatures. Uh, and that's a whole other story. But that's a very controversial decision. There is a fierce dissent by Justice Laforet, from which actually uh, the city of Toronto majority draws, I think, uh, inspiration in in how it speaks about uh, unwritten principles. Uh, Justice Laforet, in the provincial judge's reference, says that the ability to nullify the laws of democratically elected representatives uh, derives its legitimacy from a super-legislative text, a source, the text of the Constitution. This foundational document or a series of documents expresses the desire of the people to limit the power of legislatures in certain specified uh, ways, and judicial review is only legitimate so long as it sticks to the text. The express provisions of the Constitution are not elaborations of the underlying unwritten and organizing principles. On the contrary, they are the Constitution. To assert otherwise is to subvert the democratic foundation of judicial review. That's, again, Justice Laforet in 
in dissent in the provincial judges reference. And this is basically the position that the city of Toronto majority endorses. And Mm -hmm. yet it says, well, there is no conflict between our position and the majority's ruling in the provincial judges reference, because uh, that was just using the principles to fill a gap. Well, anything can be described as a gap. The point is that, and I think that the majority as well as Justice Laforet recognized it in the provincial judge's reference, is that in that gap, which admittedly is not large, but it's it's there, in that gap, the only reason uh, the security of uh, the salary security of uh, those provincial judges uh, was protected was the unwritten principle. And so the, the distinction between gap uh, filling and applying principles to invalidate uh, laws that the majority is trying to make in the city of Toronto, it's just not tenable. The Again, the laws that reduce the salary of civil provincial judges were invalidated because of their inconsistency as the court saw it with an unwritten principle. So the yeah, that's that's another example of where the the majority is, is really uh, on uh, thin ice uh, as it's trying to reconcile its position um, with with precedent and and failing and really failing uh, again. I've just read the Justice Laforet has uh, views which the the majority in effect endorses, and you know it, this is this is one perspective which I think is. Um, is, I think it's not right, but it's certainly a, pers- a perspective that uh, a number of very smart people have defended. But it's the position that uh, lost out in the um, uh, in the provincial judges' reference, and uh, the majority is not being very honest when it's making that position prevail, while saying that it's not being inconsistent with that case. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what would you say to maybe um, somebody who is, you know, a big proponent of, uh, you know, a textualist approach to interpreting the Constitution who might say, well, the, the provincial judge's reference that was uh, decided incorrectly uh, because, you know, the, the Constitution, uh, it, it makes it clear that um, the, the, the the written provisions are, are supreme and... Um, we have uh, a written text, and uh, you know it, it's all there, and we can all see it. But these these unwritten principles, uh, they're not in the text, and um, you know there, there's problems because uh, there's not a whole lot of agreement on necessarily what they are or what they mean. Um, and if we resort to the principles, we risk what, what you know you can run around um, some of the explicit provisions in the text of the Constitution. Uh, that that give the ability of the legislature to kind of push back um, if if there's disagreement between the courts and and the legislature. So, for example, in Section 33 of the Charter, it, it enables the legislatures to invoke the notwithstanding clause if the courts find um, certain legislation inconsistent with some provisions of the Charter. But if we resort to the the unwritten principles. You know, we're, we're preventing the legislatures from using that. Um, and in addition, there there's an amending formula in 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 the um, in the text of the Constitution. And so, in order to add new provisions to the Constitution, there there's amending process, and there's certain protections for the provinces if if we follow that process. But if we resort to these unwritten principles, uh, we're sort of throwing that whole amending formula by the wayside. So, provincial judges' references was wrong. You know, we have to stop, you know, using these unwritten principles at all and just stick to the text. So what, what would you say to that? So a number of things. Uh, on the notion that the use of uh, principles amounts to an amendment of the Constitution, I think that actually begs the question, because the point is that the principles are already part of of the Constitution, they were always part of it. Uh, the federal principle was part of the Constitution from 1867. Uh, the democratic principle was part of the Constitution from 1867, uh, and so on. So there is 
And if you are uh, applying those principles that can fairly be said to already be uh, part, and then there's we can uh, have a debate between a living constitutionalist uh, who says that the constitution evolves and an originalist who says that we, we should stick to the constitution as it was enacted. Uh, but even an originalist can say that at least for those principles that uh, can fairly be said to have been part of the constitution since it came into force, uh, there is no amendment involved in giving effect to those principles, uh, as, for example, uh, Justices Martin and Ritchie were trying to do with the patriation reference. They weren't trying to amend the Constitution. On the contrary, they were trying to prevent an amendment that would have subverted the nature of the Constitution. Uh, so th there is that. Uh, on the, the fact that principles are uncertain and subject to disagreement, this is fair uh, up to a point. I think people also tend to exaggerate a bit. I don't think that any fair and reasonable reading of the Canadian Constitution, uh, including its texts and uh, contexts and uh, you know, looking at conventions and practices and so on, would deny that it is a federal constitution. I don't think that any fair reading of the Canadian constitution can deny that it's a democratic constitution. It's not a fully democratic constitution, you might say, because, of course, we have the Senate, we have the monarchy. But mm -hmm. if you consider the, the conventions that surround those institutions, you have to recognize that it is a fundamentally democratic constitution. So the more uh, fine-grained you get, the... Uh, then you can start get to get a, a fair disagreement about the implications of those principles. I don't think that the principles themselves are actually subject to a great deal of disagreement. There, there are specific implications in particular cases, absolutely can be, and that's uh, one reason to be uh, humble and, and restrained, uh, but uh, it's not necessarily grounds for fundamentally abandoning uh, the reliance on principles for, for all purposes. Uh, people disagree about the implications of uh, individual constitutional provisions. And I think living constitutionalism encourages that perhaps even more than originalism does. Uh, but even originalists uh, disagree amongst themselves about uh, what exactly a particular provision uh, means. Uh, I think some some uh, criticism of the uh, um, of unwritten principles, as uh, some criticism of uh, judicial review of legislation uh, more generally, assumes that there is a sort of utopian alternative where uh, bad outcomes and disagreements and problems uh, wouldn't happen, and that's not true. Uh, if we didn't have judicial review of legislation, or uh, if even if we limited judicial review to uh, provisions of the of the text, we would have bad outcomes. We would have, for example, uh, the ability of um, parliament to procure amendments that uh, fundamentally alter the character of the constitution uh, in in 1982, at least as a, as a matter of law. Uh, we would. Uh, the ability now to have parliament uh, or legislatures insulate uh, the executive from judicial review. Uh, and uh, that's, I think, a standing danger. That's a standing temptation. So we have to pick our poisons. And uh, there is not going to be a solution that avoids uh, potential uh, abuse of power either by judges or by legislatures. Uh, and then perhaps the question is, well, whom do you uh, distrust more? And some people would distrust judges more than legislatures. Uh, I think that on the whole, those people are wrong. Now, finally, to the, the point about Section 33, again, uh, there is... There is truth to it, uh, but I think it's easily overstated because not all principles are just extended versions of, of charter rights. Uh, so it's true that both 
in the you know, city of Toronto and earlier in Imperial Tobacco, that's what was uh, suggested to the Supreme Court and the court uh, rightly rejected those suggestions. Uh, but the principle of federalism obviously is not uh, limited to or even based on some beefed up version of uh, charter rights. Uh, the, the democratic principle, uh, it, it will depend on, on the implications uh, you know, the rule of law, as it is expressed in Vavilov, is not a beefed-up version of uh, charter rights. Uh, so, so it depends. Uh, again, I, I think it is fair to say that unwritten principles shouldn't be used to augment uh, the provisions of the charter and thereby potentially circumvent uh, the uh, use of, of Section 33 to suspend those provisions. Uh, but that's not all that there is to uh, unwritten principles, and it's not fair to pretend otherwise. And I um, want to get your thoughts now on um, what the what you think the implications of this uh, decision might be. Um, so it was a it was a close decision, five four, and there was a quite a sharp disagreement um, between the minority and the majority. Do you think this has settled the question for for now, or, or do you think the court's going to have to revisit uh, this issue in the in the near future? I don't know if it will have to revisit it explicitly because I I don't know if a suitable case is going to come up anytime soon. Uh, if people make you know, borderline frivolous arguments. I think this one was, in fact, a borderline frivolous argument based on constitutional principle. And it's kind of remarkable that it made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but so if if that sort of arguments come up again, I think that it will be easy enough to swat them aside. But if a genuinely challenging case comes, and, and you cannot really predict that, but if that happens, I suspect that uh, the court may well uh, flip-flop again, as as it's doing here, right? And again, the court doesn't even mention Vavilov. So Vavilov, for all we know, remains good law. In, and, and that might actually be one way in which uh, principles come back uh, to the, perhaps the court's attention is if a legislature does try to insulate executive decision-making from uh, judicial review in whole or, or in part, uh, that might give rise to a dispute that makes its way up. And then the court will probably say, oh, no, we, we didn't mean to say that the rule of law imposes no constraints on uh, the standard of review in administrative law. Uh, so I, I've become generally quite cynical about the Supreme Court and its mm-hmm. willingness to adhere to stare decisis. I, I think the court uh, changes its opinions a lot uh, and usually without saying so, or very often at least without saying so. Uh, so I I wouldn't um, say that this is the, the last word on unwritten principles. Uh, but those issues also don't necessarily come up all that often, so uh, there is no telling when the court might return to them. And uh, any any concluding thoughts on uh, this decision and uh, the unwritten principles of the Constitution? So one one thing that may be worth noting, and from my perspective, this is a good thing, uh, and many people will disagree with that. What we should say that this decision fits into a pattern of uh, other decisions where the court emphasizes the primacy of the constitutional text over a more freewheeling interpretation. Uh, I've uh, an article that has just come out in the Queen's Law Journal. Uh, I was very happy to publish there, which looks at some recent decisions uh, on the interpretation of the Charter, which all take this approach over you know, strong minority views, but they all take this approach of fo- focusing primarily on the Constitution's text. And I think that 
those decisions are right to do so. Uh, here, the Supreme Court goes a bit overboard. Uh, they again, they, they come out the right way because the um, city was trying to make an end run uh, around the case, uh, around the text of of the charter. And the, the court is absolutely right to uh, stop them in uh, their tracks. Uh, but it goes too far when it tries to prevent future cases from uh, uh, raising those arguments. And so the this, this case does serve, uh, it fits into a pattern of saying that the text is really important and we've perhaps disregarded the importance of the text in uh, Canadian constitutional jurisprudence uh, for a long time. And that is uh, seems to be changing, and that is a good thing. Uh, but we shouldn't make the opposite mistake of thinking that the text answers everything. Uh, as a matter of text itself, Section uh, 52 uh, of the Constitution Act of 1982 says that the Constitution of Canada uh, includes those uh, various texts, notably those from uh, 1867 and 1982, it's not limited to those texts, uh, and that is in the text itself. Uh, and we we have some very difficult questions that we should be addressing uh, about the relationship between the written and the unwritten parts of the Constitution. I think it's fair to say, as the Supreme Court has uh, in the secession reference, that the Constitution is primarily a written one, uh, but it's a mistake uh, that disregards both the text and the history of the Constitution to say that it's an exclusively written one. I think that the, an exclusively and exhaustively written Constitution is a mirage, uh, and even in the United States, you will not find that. Uh, and we need to uh, avoid the temptation of those uh, of either disregarding the text or the temptation of uh, shackling ourselves to it and saying, you know, not not a step beyond this, uh, because that's not going to work out either. Uh, and so it's it calls for intelligence and humility on the part of both the court and those of us who are trying to comment on the Constitution and on how the court approaches it. Professor Sirota, thank you for being part of the Law School Show. My pleasure. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.